0: Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit Bergenparkchurch.org. Well good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to Bergen Park Church this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've been with us the last uh, few weeks We've been taking a look at Colossians chapter one verses fifteen through twenty. So this is part four of four. We're going to uh, wrap up uh, this section of scripture today. So um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you recall an illustration I used about uh, Mr. Moretti's Italian restaurant, maybe, right? And and the idea was you were looking for a job, you wanted to make a little extra money, so you got hired as a dishwasher. In the Italian restaurant and and eventually kind of started working your way up and doing other tasks and and serving and and cooking and learning the accounting and and the whole operation and eventually you got so proficient at running the restaurant that Mr. Moretti decided to leave you in charge while he went away to visit his family in Italy for the few weeks and So as he was gone as he was away um, you started changing things in the restaurant And you took away the Italian uh, food and recipes and replaced it with Mexican food and eventually took down the sign in front of the restaurant that said Moretti's uh, Italian restaurant and and replaced it with Moretti's Mexican restaurant. And then you recall he he comes back eventually from vacation and he's not happy. So that's where I want to pick it up. Um, He calls you into his office and he has some choice words for you, right? He begins to yell um, with such passion he, he, he switches even into Italian and he's, he's gesturing and he's upset and he sends you back to the dishwashing room and goes about restructuring, reordering, reorganizing his restaurant, putting everything back that you had torn apart. So in the same way that it was never your restaurant to change in the first place, when we look at the world around us, It's not our world, it does not belong to us, it belongs to Jesus Christ. And that goes for the church as well, it's not our church, it's not ours. It belongs to Jesus Christ, it's his. And so when we look uh, back at Colossians one this morning, we're gonna be in verses 18 through 20 and what I want us to uh, come to understand is that the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church, his body. And he reconciles the church. He loves his church. And he has redeemed and saved his church. And he is extending that reconciliation to the whole world. He's here to reconcile all things in heaven and earth to himself. So let's read the passage. Colossians 1, 18 through 20. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be in your word together as a church this morning to ponder these words. And Lord, we need your help. Um, If there are areas in our lives where we're blind to what you are saying to us, would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you help us to come to understand the meaning of this passage, that we would glorify you and walk in greater obedience to you? In Jesus' name, amen. So going back to uh, verse 15, we've seen how Jesus Christ shows us the Father, In verse 16, we've seen how Jesus reigns over all creation. He's Lord of creation. In verse 17, we saw how Jesus holds the world together. It's his world. And today I want to show you how Jesus brings reconciliation to the church and to the world. Jesus restores peace where once there was enmity. Jesus sets things back in order, beginning with his church. So like Mr. Moretti, putting his restaurant back, undoing the effects of your roguish behavior, right? Your mischief. That is what God is up to in this world, putting things back together. And the first place we see reconciliation take place in this passage is really between Christ and his bride, the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, we need to define some terms here. What do we mean by church? Because there are local expressions of the church, and then there's something also known as the church with a capital C, the, the big church, the global church. And that's really what we're talking about here. So, the church refers to God's people, that's how I would define this, God's people, known as the elect in Ephesians chapter 1, those chosen by God, drawn out of the world by God, loved by God. Um, The true Israel is another name sometimes given to the church in Romans 9 through 11. All of those, whether Jew or Gentile, who trust in God, who have put faith in God, who believe in the promise of God, that is, again, the church, the true Israel, known elsewhere in the New Testament as the bride of Christ, Ephesians in particular, Ephesians 5, the bride of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, from the very beginning, all those who have been redeemed by God through faith belong to God's church. It's God's people. So... What's gone wrong between God and his church? Because if you go back into the Old Testament, we have some images at times that show the people rebelling, turning away from God, turning away from that relationship with God. And yet we see also this vein of of God's pursuit of his people through the history of Scripture. So I want to take you to Ezekiel chapter 16 for just a moment. Um, We're not going to read the chapter in its entirety. It's, It's rather lengthy. I would encourage you to go back and and look at it this week. Um, But what I'd like to do is just summarize this relationship that exists between God and his people. So Ezekiel tells this story. It's kind of a a metaphor, I guess you could say, in which one day God took notice of something lying in in a field by the side of the road. It was a newborn baby, okay? An infant child abandoned by her parents, rejected, alone. And the child was laying there kicking, crying, screaming um, in its own blood and amniotic fluid and its umbilical cord still attached. This is the language Ezekiel uses. Newborn baby. Okay, nobody stops. Nobody took notice. But God stops and notices this child. And so he cares for the child. He gave this baby everything it needed to grow and to thrive. And the child grew up into a young woman. And God gave her beautiful clothing to wear, and he adorned her with embroidered robes and garments, okay? And then Ezekiel tells how how God then makes a covenant with this woman. He promises to be her faithful husband, to care for her. And so he does. And she becomes so beautiful that her renown spreads throughout the entire world. Her fame spreads through the world And because of her beauty, because of her renown, other suitors begin to take notice of her as well. And soon she begins seeing these other men on the side. That's the image Ezekiel is using. She enjoys her affairs so much she begins to actively pursue other lovers. She even takes all of these fine clothes, all of these good things, the good food, all that God has given her. And she uses those things to buy the favors of the nations around her. It's an image of idolatry, okay? She turns completely away from her faithful husband and establishes herself as a prostitute to the world, okay? And in fact, she becomes so proficient at the art of adultery. She becomes so proficient at prostitution that other meretricious people, prostitutes, are appalled, shocked, disgusted by her lewdness. And so the metaphor of Ezekiel 16 refers here to how God and and His people, the the relationship has has, has suffered. Israel has abandoned its love, its it's pursued activities, worship, idols, uh, all of these practices of the pagan peoples around it. And in the midst of this, God didn't give up on His bride, His people. He still loved her. He still pursued her. He redeems her by coming in love and laying down his life for her, both Jew and Gentile, all those who are saved by faith. He redeems that people. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25-27 through 27 says this, Christ loved the church. He loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish he sanctified the church so god took this fallen broken sinful idolatrous people and he restores this people to himself god has made his bride beautiful again he's given her his word the bible to guide her he's given her his spirit to lead her he's given her his life, that she might live. And if God loves the church that much, what I would suggest is we need to love the church as well. We're part of the church. We need to nurture the local expressions of the church in this world according to the will of God. Okay, God loves his church. And so we see here that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, his church. He's in a position of authority over the church. He cares for the body. And this body is made up of many parts, many pieces, individuals who come together to serve under Christ. So what do we make of this then, Um, this idea that Jesus is the head of the church? What is the purpose then of this church, of this body under the headship of Jesus Christ? Well, I've been using uh, restaurant uh, metaphors, illustrations, so I'm going to stick on that theme here for a moment. We're going to talk about food a little bit, because I think everybody likes to eat. We all enjoy a good meal. And if you were to ask, you know, what what is the most important aspect of a meal, you might get some different answers depending on who you ask. So if you ask a nutritionist, what is the most important aspect of a meal, they're probably going to tell you that it's the nutritive value of the food. It's, it's, the, it's the ingredients, it's the vitamins and the, and the minerals and the antioxidants and the fiber and all the other yummy stuff that goes into our food that, that makes us healthy people. All right, if you were to ask maybe a top chef, what is the most important aspect of, of the meal, they might tell you that it's the palate, the, the, you know, the, the flavor profile. Maybe that delicate interplay between the acidity and the bitterness or the mariage between the sweet and the savory or that that sort of thing. They're interested in the flavors. If you were to ask somebody with an artistic eye, what's the most important aspect of the meal, they might tell you it's the presentation, the aesthetic. Eating is not just done with the mouth and the nose but with the eye. If you were to ask somebody who's on the verge of starvation what's the most important aspect of the meal, they're going to tell you they don't care as long as it's edible, right? They don't care. Just cram it down the old pie hole, right? Get it done. If you ask others, maybe it's the, the, the preparation, the time spent with, uh, with, with other people maybe preparing the meal, the care that's put into uh, transforming the raw materials, the individual ingredients into something better. Right? If you ask others, it might be the social element. Being with people. The conversation, the laughter. So what makes a great meal? Well, it's all of the above, actually. Right? It's the nutrition. It's the flavors. It's the preparation. It's, it's the whole thing together. And when we ask ourselves, well, what makes the body? What makes the church what it is? Well, it's it's a lot of things, right? It's the whole Christ, the whole cross, the whole of everything Jesus commands of us. It's to glorify God, to confess and repent of sin, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others, to faithfully preach the word of God, to worship God in song, to serve his people with gentleness and love to instruct others in the truth, to make disciples of the nations, to teach others to obey the commandments of Jesus Christ. And all of this and more is rooted in the grace of God and the work of Jesus in saving, redeeming his bride. Without committed belief in this truth, without faithful obedience to this truth, the church will fail at being the beautiful bride of Christ. Remember that God wrote the story. It's his church. He initiated the story. He is the main character in the story. He's the beginning and the end of the story. It's about him. So as head of the church, Jesus makes peace, peace with his bride. He reconciles the church. He loves the church to the very end. He brought her back by giving his life for her. So I want to encourage us all, don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. Jesus hasn't. Okay. She's got a lot of problems, I realize that, but he loves her, and so should we. So Jesus makes peace with the bride, with his, his church, but secondly, Jesus will go on to reconcile all things to himself. That's the, the second part of this, and what we see happening in verse 20. So he holds the entire rebellious creation under his sovereign rule. So I want to be clear on just a couple of things here when we talk about the idea of reconciliation, what, what that means and what it doesn't mean. So reconciliation, of all things, first of all, does not mean universal salvation in the sense of all people will be saved, okay? And that would contradict the clear teaching of Jesus and the apostles and other areas of Scripture, Okay. Uh, Reconciliation of all things does not mean that the world is necessarily going to love the church and we're all going to get along great, okay? That would contradict what we obviously see around us, okay? Jesus said to his disciples, the world will hate you because of me. Take up your cross and follow me, right? So, that's not really the idea of reconciliation. So, what does reconciliation mean in verse 20? Well, the reconciliation of all things, I think, refers to the idea that by the cross, everything in heaven and on earth are being resituated, you could say under the headship and the authority of Jesus Christ. So peace is reestablished between God and his people. And because of this, the people of God should be able for their part to live at peace toward their surroundings until the final peace of God is established in the return of Jesus. So God the Son has the power to reorder the world under his authority. That's the idea. Under the authority of God the Father because the fullness of God the Father dwells in God the Son. And this is where verse 19 is very important. So take a look at that. Now let me ask you this. When you were a child, did you ever try dressing up in your parents' clothing? Did you ever try on maybe your, uh, a suit or a dress, uh, maybe your parents' clothing or your grandparents' clothing, something you found maybe in, a, in a, a chest somewhere in an attic or basement? Now, you put on this clothing, the shoes, the whole thing, and you stood in front of a, a mirror. And I don't know if you remember what you looked like. I will tell you what you look like, okay? You look like a clown. That's what you look like, because the clothes didn't fit. There's all this excessive material, cloth just draping over you. The clothes didn't fit, okay? So, we think about Jesus Colossians 1:19 tells us that Jesus is able to put on the Father's clothes essentially and they fit. Jesus can wear the glory of God and make it look good because he is God. He is God. He can put on the business suit and take care of business, so to speak. Jesus can step in and reconcile all things. He, he puts it back together according to the will of the Father. And again, we're not talking here about cosmic salvation. We're talking about cosmic renewal, cosmic restoration, cosmic reconstitution that culminates at the end of time when Jesus sets it all right. The story of Jesus Christ is a necessary step toward God's final plan in putting the world back together. The cross of Jesus Christ is a necessary step in putting it all back together. William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury in the first part of the 20th century, William Temple tells a story of a jewelry shop that contains many beautiful objects of varying degrees of value, okay? So necklaces and bracelets and rings and earrings and all that kind of stuff you would expect to find in a jewelry shop. And these pieces range in value from common, inexpensive items to very extravagant, costly pieces, okay? So we're talking everything from cubit zirconium on one end of the spectrum up to priceless diamonds, costly diamonds on the other end. However, one dark and stormy night, some thieves, a very peculiar group of thieves, breaks into this jewelry store, okay? And instead of stealing the jewelry, what they do is they go through and change the price tags around on everything in the store. Everything is re-situated, re redone So it's, it's a bit odd for thieves to do this, but that's, that's the story anyway. So to the untrained eye, nobody knows what's of value and what's, what's not. Now we can use this little story, I think, to illustrate the fact that as a result of the fall... The human sin condition, that is. As a result of the fall, the whole world is in disorder. We call good evil and evil good. We love the wrong things. These higher order kinds of things, philosophers sometimes speak about the transcendentals, so things like like goodness, beauty, and truth, these things that have kind of just been instilled in the world by the common grace of God. These things have been cast down and often replaced with an obsession in our cultures with the ugly, and the base, and the, and the vulgar, and the shocking. And we just look at, you know, what, what are the, the bestsellers in, in, in the bookstores? What are the recommendations of the local public library? What do we call good literature, good art? Look at, look at music, pop culture's definition of good music, mass-produced, manufactured melodies with juvenile lyrics, many of them. Look at the media, the noise of the media, mundane nonsense transposed into world-ending crises that just draw us in and drag us back in over and over again. And don't even get me started on the noise that the church itself has produced in the world. We're not always doing much better. See, how we think as a people is in disorder. How we entertain ourselves is often in disorder. How we use our time is in disorder. How we engage with people in our community is in disorder. How we eat and drink is oftentimes in disorder. The entirety of our affections needs to be reordered. We sometimes get it right. We oftentimes get it wrong. The price tags on what's what in the world need to be put back where they belong. That's the idea. It's a broken, fallen place. And we're part of that misalignment, okay? Our affections are misaligned. Our hearts are misaligned. Our actions are misaligned. But Colossians 1.20 tells us that Jesus reorders us and then uses us to reorder the world around us until the day he returns. So being at peace with yourself begins with being at peace with God, and being at peace with the world begins again with being at peace with God. This idea of peace is a very important thing in the passage. This is why the cross of Jesus is at the center of reconciliation. He renews and restores us so we can become participants with him in the restoration of the world. See, being at peace is not just about a feeling, okay? Now, the feeling is important, I don't want to diminish that. I hope it becomes a feeling. I hope you have an experience of peace with God and peace within your circumstances. But understand that peace and the kind of peace Paul is talking about here is a reality of what Jesus Christ has done at the cross. So the objective reality of peace and the subjective experience of peace need to live in the same space in our lives what we feel rooted in what is is true to Jesus. Jesus reconciles us to God by reordering our minds, our hearts, our hands, and our feet toward gospel confidence and toward gospel action. Johann Goethe once said, I'll put the quote up on the screen. I love this quote. Let everyone sweep in front of his own door and the whole world will be clean. Let everyone sweep in front of his own door and the world will be clean. The church, the beautiful bride of Christ, needs to start sweeping, promoting goodness, promoting beauty, promoting truth, promoting gospel in the world through word and through action in the name of Jesus Christ. It starts in front of our own front door, with our own neighbors, our own community. So application, let's, let's see. What should we do? What do we do about this? Well, first off, let's repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Believe him. Renew our confidence in him. Let's return once more to the cross of Jesus. We need this every day. The Christian life is about every day walking in his grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior. Let's immerse ourselves in his word. Let's follow him so closely that, dare I say, we trip over his heels, because we're walking so closely with our Lord and Savior. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's talk about dogs for a moment, okay? Our family adopted a dog about a year ago. Okay, my, a couple of my kids had been asking for a long time if we could get a dog. So finally, we felt like we were in a place in life where, yeah, we could, we could get a dog. So we went down to one of these uh, rescue places to adopt a dog. And we got a very unique kind of odd dog. This dog, we paid a dollar for it. It came off the, um, the, 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 the discount rack <laughs> at, the, uh, at the rescue. It was one of those dogs that was kind of right at the end of its... I don't know what was going to happen next. It probably wasn't good, but it was a $1 discount dog, okay? They said it was a, a lab mix, okay? And that's what they'll t- Every dog at the rescue is a lab mix, right? So this dog, I think th- there's, there's some lab in there. Um, there might be a little bit of Doberman, I think. There might be some other stuff. Maybe a little bit of Velociraptor in there, too. <laughs> I don't know, this is a, it's a weird dog. We've even theorized, to take this a step further, that this dog may be related to the jackals in Second Kings 9 who ate Jezebel after she fell from the window. So that's the kind of dog we're dealing with. But I've grown very attached to this dog. I love this dog. And the dog loves me. Dogs sometimes kind of pick out a human that they really attach themselves to. And this dog follows me everywhere. Um, I can guarantee you right now she's laying near the front door waiting for me to get home. Either thinking about me or dreaming about me if she's asleep. But she's there waiting for me. Um, anytime I sit, she comes over and lays her, her head on my lap and just looks up at me. Um, she follows me around the house every time I enter a room. I mean She's, she's right there. Um, She's almost tripped me down the stairs a few times because her head is like right against the back of my leg. I can feel her smelly dog breath on me every time I'm walking around the house. And you see where I'm going with this, right? How close have we walked with Jesus? Are we tripping over his heels because we're walking so closely to him? We love him that much. You know, how do we do that as a church? Well, it starts with being in his word. You can't read the Bible too much. I just want you to know that. I've heard people sometimes say, you know, oh, if, you know, spend too much time there, it could become an idol, that sort of thing. No, you can't read it too much. Meditate on the word of the Lord day and night. You can't pray too often. Pray without ceasing, right? You cannot have too great a confidence In Jesus Christ, you can't. That's the Christian life. So I want to challenge you. Are we tripping over the heels of Jesus because we're walking that closely? Because we love him that much? Because we want to know him that well? That's what we're called to do. To engage with him and through that, engage with the world around us. That's what reconciliation looks like as people whose hearts and minds have been reordered and reconciled to God by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, let's allow God to make us people of reconciliation as well. Now, we're going to go to a time here of communion, as we do every week, and this is our opportunity as we come to the end of the, the teaching of the Word to really reflect, what is God doing in my heart? What is He doing in my life? What do I need to know What do I need to take away? What do I need to put into practice from this? I want to urge you, uh, go ahead and pick up uh, the communion elements if you have not yet done so. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Basically what this is saying is, if you're not a believer, don't take the communion, but use this time to reflect on your relationship with God. If you are a Christian, you are invited to take communion. It doesn't matter where you're at today. You're coming in here maybe with confusion, with frustration, with brokenness, with sin you're dealing with. Communion is a grace. It's given to us by God to, to encourage us, right? to restore us. So I want to urge you to think on those things as we take communion together. So as we read, Jesus began by taking the bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in the of me. Then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord God, you are the king of all creation. You have called us to live in your kingdom. You are Lord your world, it's your church. And We have the privilege, the pleasure, according to your grace, according to your love, to be a part of that. I ask, Lord, that we would not take that for granted, that we would walk in faithfulness to you every day. Help us to be part of the reconciliation you are bringing about in this, in this entire creation. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name.